Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. Um, but today, before we get to having that discussion, we'll talk about the cognitive revolution. Um, this is the last, of course, lecture that I'm giving. The rest of this is we turn it over to you guys and we start having presentations, which is going to be great. I'm looking forward to that a lot. Uh, if you haven't signed up for your classic paper presentation, do so. They start Tuesday. Okay. Um, Academic psychology has had basically become in in America, and when I say America, I mean the continent. So we're talking about the United States and Canada. Um, had become basically become behaviorism, and it had in many respects in Europe too. Okay, so now there were holdouts. They got the Gestaltists we talked about on Tuesday. So Gestalt psychologists certainly were not. Behaviorists. Uh, Bartlett is a, a British um, psychologist who talked about, if you took memory with me, we talked about how memory is, is uh, what I'm looking for, reconstructive. And he was the first person to do that, talk about the reconstructive of, uh, aspects of memory. So Bartlett was talking about memory in the 20s and 30s when no one else was in the English speaking world. Right? As far as academic psychologists go, other people mentioned the word memory. It wasn't like it had that much of an effect on the culture. So there were some people, but for the most part, there were people doing perception and things like that. But I guess you can also say, what was the alternative? Unless you're doing psychophysics. Is Freud the alternative? I mean, really, seriously, what's the alternative? What else are you going to do if you're a psychologist, because we've gotten rid of silly introspectionism that Kitchener liked. We've got psychophysics, and then what's the big thing in psychology? With, eh, well, I guess we got Pavlov. That kind of leads towards, leans towards behaviorism. We wouldn't call Pavlov behaviorism in any respect, but Pavlov's still this condition. So you have Freud. He did have an impact in academic settings. Uh, you, you can find articles uh, written from a Freudian perspective. Uh, you can find fascinating attempts at doing experiments using psychoanalysis. Um, most of them not good, but they exist. You can find that in the 30s the 40s. The hardest part, of course, is you've got a theory that isn't falsifiable. So it's hard to do science when you can't disprove a theory. Right? Because every, everything is a, if everything is a defense mechanism or the result thereof, how can I prove there's no defense mechanism of, of X, Y, or Z? I can't. Because I'm projecting. But, little joke there, ha, ha, ha. 
How do you do experiments on the, on the universal unconscious of Young? <laughs> you can't. These are neat ideas, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. I mean, except for the, you know, incest. They're neat ideas and the patricide, but, and they did some good things for art, for sure, right? And literary criticism, probably, and things like that. But as far as um, our discipline, I don't think it helped it very much. So there wasn't, Freud was there, like I said, there's the physiological type. So there are people doing things like, today we call it behavioral neuroscience. They used to call it physiological psychology. So looking at, say, the effects of hormones on behavior, some of that stuff was getting done. Um, looking at perception, learning from a biological standpoint. Like I said, I think today we call it behavioral neuroscience. There's people doing stuff with testing. Talked a lot about that, about World War I and the effect it had on, uh, you know, all the testing of, of, of potential recruits into the army. And well, draftees never really recruits, I guess. Um, in the States. There's psychophysics and there's behaviorism. Psychology was, there was a giant chunk missing. The stuff about thinking was missing. Right? But everybody was influenced by behaviorism. It was very powerful. And I think I've told you that at Harvard, where Skinner was, you said, what's on your behavior, not what's on your mind, in the psych department. I think it was probably somewhat sarcastic, but also probably somewhat like, yeah, well, we shouldn't mention mind. In Europe, you have the Gestaltists. You've got some of them in the States, as we talked about, because of leaving Germany um, because of oppression. Um, and, but that's into the late 30s they're coming to the States. Talking about the 20s and the 30s, and even into the 40s, um, it's behaviorism. study memory, they just didn't call it memory. They called it verbal learning. Okay. So you would learn a list of words and recall them. They wouldn't, I'm sorry, you wouldn't recall them. They wouldn't say that. Screw them. You would recall the words. Okay. Fine. That was called verbal learning. And a lot of really good paradigms that we use today, lists of words, interference, Retroactive proactive interference, they wouldn't have called it those things, but that's fine. They'd probably call it competing associations or something. Um, a lot of the techniques that are used in memory research today were developed by people studying what they called verbal learning. They just thought of all of us as nothing different really than pigeons that who could speak. Right? And didn't shit on statues as a rule. Some of us perhaps have, I don't judge. But, so we're no different than any other animal. Really, the idea of equipotentiality. 
the idea that any stimulus can be a, associated with any other stimulus, which is ridiculous, but it's still a thought. So really, they're just doing like Skinnerian stuff with people. One of the things that you have to understand about real behaviorism is it's atheoretical. There is no theory. It is descriptive. It is completely descriptive. So when I talk about, I don't know, well, if you've taken memory with me, I'll talk, I, I talk about how there's these different modules and systems in human memory and how this one works with this set of rules, this one works with this set of rules. That's not what a real behaviorist does. A behaviorist describes the data and stops. Behaviorists don't do any statistics. And then you're thinking, wait, I'd like to be a behaviorist. Tell me more. Is there a newsletter I can subscribe to? It's one of these cases where, well, Skinner said, the average describes no animal. Which actually, I kind of like. Uh, anyway, like, so sometimes, whenever anybody's done work with me that's been, it's been a long time, because I don't have a lab here, um, the animal work with me, and so like, can you show me the individual data? I want to see what each animal's doing. Then we can look at the average, and the average looks like all the individuals are but um, it's just, so we did this, and then this happened. It's very descriptive. That's all it is. It's theoretical. There is no theory in behaviors. This is why you wouldn't call Pavlov a behaviorist, because if you read Pavlov, which I encourage you to do if you really, really, really can't sleep, is that when you read Pavlov, he talks about response centers in the brain. He talks about represent, well, basically representation. You don't do that in real behaviorism. And go read even an issue today of the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior, JAP, which is basically Skinner's journal. Not um, more, but it wasn't. It's still like that. It's exceedingly boring stuff. The, 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 the methods, the techniques are great. We still use them, but it's atheoretical. So it's Skinner with people. So it's, when you read these old verbal learning experiments, um, they're great, they really are good, but then you go, but why aren't you interpreting this? Because we don't interpret, we just report. I can't even imagine how boring it must have been to be in a psych class back then. Prof up there standing up there just saying, so this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Please go home. That just seems really horrible. Okay. Skinner in the 50s. This is sort of the height of the power of behaviorism. Early 50s, late 40s. Publishes a paper saying that language is just operant condition. really did do that. Now, I will say that there's a lot of operant conditioning in language learning. There really is. When you're, and again, I don't know you, anybody here a parent? No. Okay. Anybody here have no little brothers and sisters even? Like little enough that you saw them learn language. You remember any of that? Okay, so most of you know, okay. 
That would be a big gap for me to work with sister. Do you know any small children learning language? Okay, so some of you have seen this. Okay, good. Because you really have to experience it on a daily basis to get what I'm going to say here. When you're, taught, when you're teaching a kid language, you don't actually specifically teach them. You don't sit them down at a desk and teach them chair, chair, say chair. You know, that would be weird. But you do reinforce them when they get something right. You do, there's a lot of, oh, that's great. You know, they, when, they, when they look and they go, cookie, and you, you think you say, cookie, that's right. And when they, when they say, when they point at a, a, my, my daughter called all animals, all four-legged animals, shot, cat. Because she's like two legs. Every animal, because we had cats. And so she'd see cows, we're driving somewhere, she goes, shot. You go, no, Maddie, that's a cow. And then when she'd see the dog, shot, now that's a dog. It's doing shit. But when she saw a cat, Reinforcing people, so there is, there, it is true that you reinforce kids when they're learning language, and kids will certainly work for. In other words, it's reinforcing. They will work for credits. Two and a half year olds will do anything for making someone older who has some power over them smile. Right? They'll also write stuff, as we know. But they really do like making you happy. They don't get that you don't want to do that all day. Okay? The worst thing you can do is play peekaboo with a kid on a plane, because it's, you're doing that the whole flight. Which is actually usually better than the people you're sitting beside who are taking their shoes off on the plane. Whatever happened to civilization? Um, anyway. There is off-brand conditioning in language learning. There certainly is. I would not, I mean, it's silly to say there's none. But Skinner said it's all off-brand conditioning. And that's ridiculous, right? It can't all be off-brand conditioning. Because if it were, we could... Why is it that it's, it's so hard to learn language after you're five or six? Right, when you're five or six, we just spoke two languages to our daughter, and she just learned two languages. It was no effort. The only effort was remembering to say things in both languages to her. Right, that was the only thing. And making sure that some of the media that she consumed, you know, some of the t stories we would read, and some of the TV shows we'd watch, and stuff like that were in French as well as English. Right, because we were living in London, Ontario, um, when she was little, and there's not a whole lot of francophone stuff going on there, right? Fine, but that's what all we had to do. However, later on, when you're learning a language, it's hard, right? Like, when you learn a language when you're 12 or 15 or 17, it's hard. You gotta study it. You can't just sit there and hope that it just happens. Always be amazed when you see somebody who learned a language later in life. It boggles my mind. Because the effort you have to put in, right? My wife didn't speak English until she was 18. She writes better than I do, which I find really annoying. 
That probably is opera conditioning. It's not the special language system, right? But we do, and we know this today, have a specialized system for language. In fact, Skinner even though how very clever, taught pigeons language. One would peck on a thing that said, hello, and the other one would peck on a thing that said, how are you? And he would choose between, I'm fine, or not so good today. What kind of bullshit? Like, I mean, okay. Look, I can train a pigeon to do anything, too. If you're, I'm really good at shaping birds. It's just something, some people are good at it, some people aren't. Um, I was very good at it. So I'm sure I could teach a, a couple of pigeons to do that. Skinner also taught pigeons to play ping pong. If you've ever seen the video, way to go. I'm very impressed here. So that wasn't language. It's pecking a freaking disc, a lighted disc, a pecking disc. It's stupid. Okay. So, Noel Chomsky comes along, and he's often thought of as the sort of father of cognitive science. He's a linguist. Um, I will say that Chomsky isn't nearly as big among linguists as he is among psychologists. So Noam Chomsky. Um, he talked about the idea that there's a universal grammar that on behind every, or at the basis, the deep level of every language is the same. Right? Every language has verbs and nouns and adjectives and you know, things like that. And the surface level of language, what we put on it, are the words and the phonemes we use and things like that. So everybody uses the same, so you can always translate one language into another. It's not like uh, uh, on Star Trek with the Tamarians that speak in metaphor, right? Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. You know that episode, don't you? If you don't, watch it. It's called Darmok, TNG. Because they speak in metaphor which is ridiculous, but it's a great show. Good episode. So Skinner comes along and says, come on, or uh, says this, and then Chomsky's like, oh, come on. And he says language is special, and I think we all agree that there's something very special about language. I doubt Chomsky would say that a lot of it's opera conditioning. I am certain there's a lot of opera conditioning in language learning, but I'm also certain that there's something very special going on with language. We are ready to learn language, right? We are ready, we are hooked up to do language. It's different than other things. So it's not just operant conditioning, there is operant conditioning. So you'll hear people say, take a sort of strong Chomskyan view, and they'll say it's not operant conditioning at all. And I don't think that's fair. I think there's, I know there's operant conditioning involved. There's a nice article in, um, uh, Frontiers in Comparative Psychology by uh, Chris Sturdy, and he talks about how much opera conditioning actually is in language. But that it's still special. You could have opera conditioning and still say it's special. And I think that's a, the mid, middle view is more sensible. Typically, radical views are typically ridiculous. I mean, when you say all this way or all that way, typically, when you're saying something else is impossible, usually you're wrong. Usually. 
Well, it's a theoretical debate. Okay. So that's one thing in the cog that, that, that sparks the cognitive revolution because you can't actually explain language learning just with operant and classical condition. Okay. There's HM, there's Brendan Milner. Um, that's probably, that's recent enough. Scoville Milner, you know the case of HM. Um, where HM gets the campus removed. I'm not gonna go through this story. There's some wonderful stuff, uh, the one-on memory in that Netflix show, The Mind, the Mind Explained, uh, where they actually have snippets of an interview where Brenda is interviewing Henry, Henry Molson, that's his name. I used to call him HM, because for years his name was known as HM because it was, he was dead, he was alive, and it was anonymity. Um, and it's wonderful hearing him and her talk. So he couldn't form, now this, we, we don't say this today. Today we say he couldn't form new episodic. But at the time, Scoville and Milner said he couldn't form new long-term memories. Because there was this information processing model of memory, right, which eventually becomes called the Atkinson-Schiffrin model in the 70s. Uh, but the idea there's short-term memory and long-term memory and some sort of sensory register, right? You know, this, this model is sort of two, it's oddly enough called a two-store model of memory, even though it's got, there's three boxes. So he could learn stuff and he couldn't remember it. And it really suggests there are different systems because he could learn things. HM could learn things. And up until he, Brenda Milner worked with him for a very long time, for much of her, well, for a, yeah, much of her career. Um, and she, he didn't ever remember who she was. She always had to introduce herself to him, but he started to, he eventually recognized her. She was familiar. So he's learned something. He used to know who she was. So he would say things like, did we go to school together? Or he'd say, are you on TV or a reporter or do you work for a newspaper or something? Because those are good guesses, right? If you recognize somebody and you don't know who they are, they're probably an old high school friend or something. Or somebody on TV you don't quite recognize. Them. Right? It's like when you go back, if you're not from here, you go back to your hometown and you see somebody walking down the street and they say hi and you go, I And actually, no, it's just a guy that used to work at a store that you used to go to. But I mean, you, you make a good guess. Your memory just guesses things. So this is what happens with HM, right? So she's, her and Donald Hebb, in essence, invent cognitive neuroscience, which is pretty great because they're at the Montreal Neurological Institute. Um, I think, oh, I think, I know Brenda Milner deserves a Nobel Prize. She should have a freaking Nobel Prize. And also, she's not any getting any younger. She's 94? Um, and they can't give Nobel Prizes to people who are no longer around. So I think the Nobel people ought to get around to this. Um, pretty amazing. I mean, first of all, 
she gets to Montreal in 1940. Um, she's bilingual, so she can speak French and English, though she's a Brit. She gets to Montreal, and I, th I think it's 1940. She has a, a job, she has a master's degree, and has a job doing um, teaching at Université um, de Montréal, okay? So teaching in French. And then she's like, I want a PhD. So she goes to McGill, because this is a different time when you're in, you got a job, you're like, yeah, screw my job, I want to go to PhD. So he goes, she goes and gets a PhD with head at McGill. Uh, and then she ends up working at the Montreal Neurological Institute, where she still does. Um, she's got enough pull that a buddy of mine, Stefan Kuller, who, who I went to grad school with, um, who's a prophet in, in neuroscience at Western, um, he didn't have funding because he wasn't Canadian. I think he's probably Canadian since by now, but he's German. He was at his PhD and he wanted to do a postdoc with Milner. She's like, I, so he, she interviews him and everything's going really great. And he's like, I, I, the problem is I, I can't get money from NSERC or anything because I'm, I'm not a Canadian citizen. And she's like, hang on. And she makes a phone call and she's got money for it. That's the kind of pull that she has because she's awesome. And now Stefan Curler, this guy, is on my daughter's PhD committee. And every time he introduces her when she gives a talk or something in a class, he goes, you know, I went to school with her father. Every single time that he's. So she's amazing. And that case, it's like, oh, it can't just be plain old operant conditioning because there's two different systems and there's a brain thing correlated with it. We have physiological evidence, right? Me and Brenda. <laughs> It's in 2002, <coughs> where I weighed a lot more than I do now. As you can see, she's not a tall woman. She was getting, got an honorary degree at, at, at the, in Cornerbrook at Grandville Campus of, of Murray University of Newfoundland. So I had to hang out with her for two days. It's the greatest thing ever. And I wanted to talk science, and all she wanted to do was talk about hockey. <laughs> Seriously, she's a big Montreal Canadian fan. All she talked about was hockey. She got mad at me when Montreal lost the game in overtime during the playoffs, and she told me that was bad luck. And she said I was never to speak to her about hockey again. Because when I said, oh no, Montreal, she lost in overtime, she looks at me like a true Habs fan. And in this, like she's a sweet old lady. And she says, at least tell me Toronto lost. I said, no, they won. You're never to speak to me again about hockey, young man. You're bad luck. Young man, I'm 38 there. Um, so what starts happening is people are thinking about memory now, and they're not free to say it, because Scoville and Milner's day, the HM stuff gives people permission to talk about memory. So you got people like Endel Tulving um, talking about episodic and semantic memory. He was at the University of Toronto. He should also have a Nobel Prize, by the way. Basically, people who I've worked with or know should all have Nobel Prizes so I can say that I know people with Nobel Prizes. This is what you're, you should be gathering from this. Um, Craig and Lockhart, the most cited paper in all of experimental psychology is Levels of Processing in Memory by Craig and Lockhart, 1972. There's Gus Craig. Uh, he's retired now, both of them are. Well, you know, it's funny, he's retired he retired from U of T and then got a job in the States um, because it was still mandatory retirement. So he's like, ah, I'm going to retire and go to another university. And Al Pavio, um, who just, Al just died, at uh, Western. 
talked about imagery and the dual sort of code of memorable. Alpavio, by the way, he had he was big into imagery, and he was the biggest proponent of the idea that our memory involves a dual code, both the item itself and an image of the item, which is very intuitive. Right? It's easy to remember words like um, table and desk and chair. They just remember words like justice, freedom, and dignity. Just big like that. Yeah, he said that. Published all kinds of things, all kinds of data. The guy literally across the hall from the Western, Zen and Pollution, which is just a great name, um, said, no, it's not that, it's this. And they, it was a theoretical argument like for the ages. They would trash each other in the literature. It was pretty good. They were friends with each other. They worked together. But they really didn't like the other guy's position. And in 1980, would have been 88, uh, the psychology club at Western, the undergraduate psychology club, I was the vice president, I think. I was something. And me and my buddy John, who was the treasurer maybe, went to Zen and Pollution and said, you know, we should, because he was working, he knew a guy that was, knew a guy. And we said, you guys should have, what do you about, we'll have a pub night, and then the center, the, 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 the final thing will be you guys arm wrestle, and the winner, or the loser now has to just completely you know, get rid of this theory, and we'll have we'll build it as you know imagery versus dual code versus single code memory, you know, grudge match for the ages. And Zen and said, um, "Do you know that Al was Mr. Ontario Bodybuilder in 1959? You ever look at the size of his arms? No. So this guy here was actually a bodybuilder, and it doesn't do him justice there, but he was huge. He was a not a not a small man." So the thing about this whole cognitive revolution, what it's saying is that the mental world can be grounded in the physical world, right? And it's through information, computation, and feedback. In other words, things like, well, there's no need to draw a picture. You know how these systems work. When you think about these sort of cognitive systems, you can think about information going from this box to this box to this box. Right, you've heard me talk about modules and how they represent the universe and isomorphisms. So that's one of the things. The mind can't be a blank slate because blank slates don't do anything. There have to be mechanisms built in. A seemingly infinite number of range of behaviors can be generated by um, a finite number of processes. There are universals in how minds work, no matter what your culture is. So everybody has the same gear in their mind, the same cognitive equipment, and we, and the, the, though there are certainly are cultural differences, they're really pretty small differences when you look at the fact that as a species we behave roughly the same. And we have many interacting parts or modules um, or systems, you can call them many of those things, that create cognition. Now, where do you think behaviorists were strongest? Well, obviously, they'd be strongest among the people that study you know, the pigeons and the rats, among the animal people. So 
you got people, animal learning people are the last people to come around to the idea of cognitive psychology, the idea of representation. Um, one of the first people to talk about this stuff uh, in 19, well, it was published in 1972, Sarah Shuttleworth. Um, she was in graduate school when she wrote the paper, uh, Constraints on Learning, it's called. It's, uh, and she wrote that, there's her and one of her graduate students just before he left to do a postdoc. Um, and she wrote that as a graduate student, which is pretty amazing. Um, you got people like uh, Bill Roberts at the University of Western Ontario who had a job, there's Bill, he had a job at, oh, I forget what liberal arts college he was working at, one of those small American universities where it's really expensive to go to school. And he had a job and he was like, ah, I want to learn. And he was doing like Skinner kind of stuff. He's like, you know what? I think the future is talking about animal memory. I quit my job and I'm going to go do a postdoc with Endel Tullivan. And he went and did human memory for a while and then started ordering rats. And Endel was like, um, why am I paying for rats again? It's kind of great. By the way, you can't call, oh, I can call Endel Tullivan Endel. You can't, you get, he would be, you get very angry. He's very formal. You have to have a PhD call Mendel, which is a little weird, but it's his rule. As long as you know the rules, it's fine. Remember I told you the story when one of the Tolving students graduated, he put his hand out after the oral exam and said, you may not call me Mendel, and he said, this is Dan Schachter. Dan said, you can call me Dr. Schachter now, which I think is pretty awesome. So there's Bill Roberts. Uh, Bill was, again, these are, that's at Western and U of T. Bill's retired now. He's like 80-something, but he still has a lab, and he still is an editor of a journal, and he still has a graduate student because he can't stop doing science. And I, when, I, when, I, when I found out he retired, I, I made a postdoc with Bill. I've known Bill for a long time. And I was an undergrad working in his lab. Like I've known him forever. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, and he's the most sweet, even-tempered person well, it's sad that I'm retired because I was finally doing some good work. And actually, I grabbed him by the shoulders and I sort of shook him and I said, do you know who you are? Like, he's really important in the history of psychology in Canada, but also just uh, in comparative psychology. Al Campbell in Nebraska was somebody who was very important in this kind of stuff as well, talking about memory and the biology of memory, and not the neurobiology of memory. Other people were doing that. He was talking about the sort of evolutionary biology of memory in animals, which is very cool. So we're talking about behavioral neuroscience and evolutionary biology coming together with psychology. And now probably the biggest Proponents going from the, the last people to step into the sort of cognitive psychology world were the animal learning types. But then once they stepped in, they brought along with them all this other biology stuff and have been, I think, really influential with the rest of psychology about the importance of things like evolutionary biology in psychology. Um, so, a large organization of people who study animal psychology is, isn't called something like something behavior thing, it's called the Comparative Cognition Society. 
And the word cognition, as you might know, is the second word there. Also, I, I run the Twitter account for the society. I do all the social media stuff for the society. Sometimes I mistakenly tweet from it and have to delete them. Because I, I have like eight Twitter accounts, right? So now and then I'll say something and it'll be like, you know, something, something, fucking Maple Leafs. And it's like, oh, 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 no, 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 the society didn't say that. Delete. Pretty good about that, but sometimes it happens. You might have guessed that I run the Algoma Psychology one on Twitter as well. Okay, can anybody imagine psychology without cognition in it? No, I don't think. Like, it's so weird to think what it was like in the 40s. It must have been, like, I can't even imagine, like I said, how boring would classes be? Pigeon is put in box. FR20, here's an FR20 graph. Next. See, I don't think it's something that we can even fathom. Can you imagine psychology in the cognitive neuroscience without people like Brenda Milner's understanding? When we're in classes, when we're in classes today, are there any classes where things about brains don't come up? This size Iliad, uh, even this one. Okay, not not counting stats, but any kind of content classes, right? It always comes up because everyone knows that it happens up here, that behavior comes from up here. But they also know that we have to talk about thinking, right? I think eventually, maybe even next year, when I teach this class again, there may be another. This will not be the final lecture, maybe. There might be another one called the neuroshift, because, I mean, everything's going neuroscience. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a thing. You imagine studying memory without saying memory. We're talking about representation. Well, no, that would be ridiculous, right? It's impossible. I can't imagine psychology without the words internal mental events or representation. I can't. I mean, I know what it looks like. I can read papers from the 1940s. It's boring and stupid. Like, it really is boring to me. I mean, I, look, I, my training, my major, graduate school is weird. So my ma I have a major in two minors for graduate school. My major is animal, co sorry, comparative cognition. My minors are human cognition and animal cognition. Sounds roughly the same, doesn't it? But um, you just invent your own fields, right? But I can't imagine doing all those things without, notice the word cognition was in all those. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing. Also, do you notice the Canadian content in this? That wasn't just me doing that because I'm Canadian. Um, it really isn't. And it's not doing that just because of the sort of an availability heuristic of I know Canadian people, so I'll pick those people. Any history of psych book would mention Brandon Miller. Or Ed Engel Tolbert and Gus Crick. 
and be a skinner and move to Chomsky, but they would mention all of those people. After the war, Canada becomes a superstar in experimental psychology, like at a level that we punch so far above our weight it's ridiculous. I don't know why. There was a, at the University of Toronto, there was a concerted effort made after the war to turn it into uh, one of the best psychology departments in the world. That was done on purpose. It was mostly clinicians at U of T at that point. And so, uh, the, the chair of the department, the person took over, said, we are going to turn this into a great psychology department and just started hiring people, basically poaching people from other universities. So went around and they'd call professors uh, at, at big American schools and say, want a job in Canada? They'd especially call Canadians that had jobs and say, you want to move back home? We'll pay you more. And the same thing, I don't, I don't know what happened at Western, but eh, something similar though, they did a lot, they hired more just young people that were just coming out of graduate school. But Western and Toronto are consistently thought of as great places to do graduate psychology degrees because they made an effort to, to do that. And it's also true of University of Alberta, British Columbia, uh, Queens. They're all really strong graduate psych programs. And it's creepy when you go into those places and you look at the names on the wall because you go, I know that name and that name and that name and that name and that name. And when you're in grad school in some of those places, one of the neat things is when you're sitting in your first seminar or something where you're meeting all the faculty uh, or you're at a, like a social event where you meet the, the graduate students, meet new graduate students, meet the faculty, and you're sitting there having a beer, and you realize, I think I'm talking to a famous person. That guy just called himself Gus. I think that might be Fergus Crake, dude. Or Talving, which was just frightening because he's Endel Talving. All right, um, questions about this before we sort of do some. Freestyle talk about all the stuff. All right.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.